Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Professor Nicholas Will, Assistant Professor of Sacred Music at Franciscan University of Steubenville, giving a talk entitled, Music and Culture in the Western Church. Professor Will's talk was part of the Hildebrand Project Featured Speakers Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. It's usually not a good sign, in my opinion, whenever a lecturer starts a lecture with a quotation from Merriam-Webster. Nevertheless, I'm going to do just that. Um, (laughs) We're talking about music and culture in the Western Church, and I think we all know what music is, but perhaps it would behoove us to think about this word culture that we use a lot, and uh, it's a sort of slippery term. So Merriam-Webster says, culture is the beliefs, customs, arts, etc., of a particular society, group, place, or time. Notice that first word, beliefs. So even Merriam-Webster realizes that uh, the church, the faith, is an integral part of culture. And indeed, the church, especially in her more visible form, so art and architecture and music, uh, is a creator of culture. Um, For instance, we could think about a few examples. Um, Secular calendars, holidays, are often uh, descendants of the liturgical calendar, right? Um, The development of vernacular literature, written literature. Uh, the, the Italian uh, dialect was, was first used in what we might call art literature uh, by Christians, by people like St. Francis of Assisi in his Canticle of Brother Son and Dante in uh, The Divine Comedy. We think about Chaucer and Canterbury Tales. These are all works that uh, stem in some way from the church, and these are all uh, pillars of, of Western culture. Uh, If you think about architecture, at first the church took from the secular world uh, the Roman basilicas uh, and made them her own, but later on, of course, developed her own architectural styles, Romanesque and uh, later on Gothic, and then those styles in turn uh, formed the secular world. You see many examples of Gothic uh, state buildings, especially in the Netherlands, parts of France, and, and Belgium. And of course, uh, the same is true uh, for music. The music of the church has helped to create the music of the Western world. Gregorian chant, which is the official music of the Latin rite or Western church, is really the basis of all of Western music. And so in that sense, uh, the church has helped to create that aspect of our culture. Uh, Medieval and Renaissance polyphony had an influence on secular song. And so we see how the church has developed uh, developed culture over time. But also, and this is where uh, there's a lot of nuance here, it's not just the church creating, but the church receiving back. Uh, If we think about the liturgy itself, it's something that uh, we do, but we don't do, right? It's God that really... Uh, performs in the liturgy, even though it's an act of praise 
of, of his, his people. And, and so, in the same way that we praise God in the liturgy, but are formed by the liturgy and formed by the grace of the sacrament, uh, likewise, the church both uh, forms culture, but also receives it back and, and uh, makes it uh, anew. Now, Christians in particular have always been a little bit more liberal when it comes to using art forms from the quote-unquote secular world. They've been more liberal than uh, other monotheistic religions. So here I'm talking specifically about uh, art, so architecture, uh, art in churches, uh, and music. For instance, if we look at a typical piece of a typical uh, Islamic uh, mosque here. Uh, of course, Islam prohibits the depiction of any living thing, and so this uh, uh, Islamic art depends heavily on geometric uh, designs. If we look at Judaism, this is, by the way, Temple Rodef Shalom in uh, Pittsburgh. There's a prohibition on three-dimensional images, a sort of uneasy acceptance of two-dimensional images in certain circumstances, uh, but an absolute prohibition on any depiction of, of the Almighty. And this, uh, this idea of uh, de depiction of living beings was, uh, we're not always in agreement as Christians as well. Uh, of course, we know about the iconoclasts in the the early Middle Ages, uh, but since the Second Council of Nicaea, the church has come down strongly in favor of uh, images and thus art in the Western church. Um, in fact, the Second Council of Nicaea says, as the sacred and life-giving cross is everywhere set up as a symbol, so also should the images of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, the holy angels, as well as those of the saints and other pious and holy men be embodied in the manufacture of sacred vessels, tapestries, vestments, etc., and exhibited on the walls of churches, in the homes, and at all conspicuous places, by the roadside and everywhere, to be revered by all who might see them. For the more they are contemplated, the more they move to fervent memory of their prototypes. Therefore, it is proper to accord to them a fervent and reverent adoration, not, however, the veritable worship, which, according to our faith, belongs to the divine being alone. For the honor accorded to the image passes over to its prototype, and whoever adores the image adores in it the reality of what is there represented. So again, that's uh, a Second Council of Nicaea in 787. Now, within Christianity itself, Western Christians have been more liberal yet than Eastern Christians. I think most of us know that in Orthodox and Byzantine Christianity, there are no three-dimensional depictions of, of uh, saints or Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the theological practice of writing an icon, so that's, that's distinct from painting, that we might say in the West. So uh, uh, there's a, there is a deliberate process of suppression of the individual imagination and uh, a relative uniformity in, in Orthodox and Byzantine architecture. We have a picture here, St. John Chrysostom Church in Pittsburgh, and beautiful Byzantine Catholic Church, and you see the, uh, the lovely iconostasis, and not a 
uh, not a statue in sight, although I just noticed the Christmas trees. <laughs> they, they don't count as images, I suppose. <clears throat> um, and furthermore, amongst Western Christians, Roman Catholics have been uh, more liberal than our Protestant brethren. In fact, some Protestant sects, especially followers of Calvin, would, would follow more of a, an Islamic or, or Jewish idea of art in churches, with no depictions at all. Uh, this is an example here, the Westerkirk in Amsterdam. Beautiful building, lots of white, <laughs> no stained glass, no, no statues. But in the West, uh, we have traditionally been open to things like statues and, and uh, whatnot, especially since the Middle Ages. In fact, if you look at the portal to Notre Dame Cathedral, you can see that we practically stuff them in every place we can. <laughs> As a, another example, uh, I think this is the shrine of, of St. Joseph in uh, St. Louis. So a similar liberality, you might say, uh, is present in the West when it comes to music as well. So in strictly observed Islam, Judaism, and Orthodox or Byzantine Christianity, uh, there is a prohibition of the use of instruments other than the human voice in corporate worship, although some sects do allow it in devotional music. Ancient musical styles are generally preferred or sometimes required. Some newer innovations, such as harmony, which developed in the Byzantine and Orthodox uh, and some Jewish sects in the 18th century, is allowed, but it is by no means uh, universal. Uh, on the other hand, Western Christianity has allowed for a great deal of variety in her liturgical music since, really, for, for the last thousand years, but in particular, about the last 800 years. And so this openness to the music of the world, again, a music that, was, that originally came from the church, uh, has, has over the course of time created certain golden ages of sacred music, depending on the um, uh, circumstances of the period, sometimes the political circumstances, the, the composers themselves, the attitude of the local church authorities to musicians. Um, and so I'd just like to highlight a few of those, what I will call golden ages. The first one being uh, 14th century Paris. So uh, polyphony had its first, that's the music with multiple voices as opposed to monophony, which would be one voice, like Gregorian chant. Uh, polyphony came to its first golden age in Paris. It's a beautiful image because uh, as Notre Dame Cathedral was being built in the 13th century, the musicians uh, in Paris working in Notre Dame were building equally impressive musical edifices while the church is being built uh, around them. So I'd like to play for you uh, a Kyrie, or part of a Kyrie, from Guillaume de Machaut's Mass of Our Lady. This is the first uh, cyclic uh, polyphonic setting of the ordinary. It was all Kyrie eleison, all, all of that. Uh, second uh, golden age would be the 15th to 16th century uh, uh, Flanders school of composition. 
This is the setting of a curie, or setting of the curie in a mass by uh, Josquin Desprez. As painful as it is to stop, we must, <laughs> must press onward. Uh, and of course, 16th century Rome, um, the brightest light of that school being Giovanni Pierluigi da Palestrina. This is from his uh, Misa Pape Marcelli. So, so far, all of this has sounded relatively tame, at least to our modern ears. Now, in its day, something like the Macho Mass that we listened to would have been rather extraordinary. But you notice there aren't any other instruments used, right? When we enter into the 16th century, uh, especially in Venice, then everything explodes. Venice is the center of opera. Uh, sacred music starts to take some aspects of of opera into her bosom. There are uh, you, the use of, of almost every instrument imaginable in worship. And here is uh, an example of that by Claudio Monteverdi. This is from uh, his uh, Vespers in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Lovely. Huh? Uh, and finally, we move to 18th century, early 19th century Vienna and the orchestral mass tradition of composers like uh, Joseph Haydn, um, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Franz Schubert, even into Ludwig van Beethoven. This is from Mozart's coronation mass. So this liberality of the Western Church in allowing these musical styles into worship did create tension, as you might imagine. It wasn't all fun and games. When you open yourself up to the world, sometimes um, mistakes are made, sometimes lines are crossed, and at various times in the Church's history she's had to say, okay, well, um, we need to take a step back here and take a look at this because uh, not all of the uh, expressions of sacred music were, uh, were appropriate. So uh, the first time this happened was in the 14th century. In 1323, Pope John XXII issued a bull concerning sacred music, and he was talking about recent develops in polyphony, so this would be the music of people like Machaut that we heard uh, first. And here's what he had to say. Uh, let's see here. Well, he talks about the, the, the beauty of Gregorian chant, its appropriateness to the liturgy and all of that, but then he says, but certain exponents of a new school who think only of the laws of measured time are composing new melodies of their own creation with a new system of notes, and these they prefer to the ancient traditional music. The melodies of the church are sung in semibrevs and minims. These are divisions of the beat. Uh, the melodies of the church are, um, excuse me, with grace notes and repercussion. By some, their melodies are broken up by hocketi or robbed of their virility by discanti, again these are polyphonic techniques, uh, with a dangerous element produced by certain parts sung on texts in the vernacular. All these abuses have brought into disrepute the basic melodies of the antiphonal and gradual, he's talking about Gregorian chant there. These composers, knowing nothing of the true foundation upon which they must build, are ignorant of the modes and capable of distinguishing between them and cause great confusion. 
The mere number of the notes in these comp compositions conceal from us the plain chant melody with its simple, well-regulated rises and falls which indicate the character of the mode. These musicians run without pausing. They intoxicate the ear without satisfying it. They dramatize the text with gestures, and instead of promoting devotion, they prevent it by creating a sensuous and innocent atmosphere. Thus, it was not without good reason that Boethius said, a person who is intrinsically sensuous will delight in hearing these indecent melodies, and one who listens to them frequently will be weakened thereby and lose his virility of soul. And we see in John the 22nd uh, with Benedict the 14th, who was reforming sacred music in the mid-18th century as a response to the music of Monteverdi and his successors, and uh, uh, also at that time, uh, even early um, even early Haydn, this is, this is just before Haydn, they were responding to these issues. The, the major issues uh, uh, throughout the church's history of, of sacred music reform have largely been text, right? How a composer treats the text, uh, how a composer, uh, what, what instruments are used, okay? So um, does an instrument belong more in a theater than in the church? Uh, does the music draw our attention away from God and, and onto things of the world. These are the, the major themes of, of the church's reform of sacred music, in addition to uh, how much it captures the spirit of Gregorian chant, which the church has always continually said is the music most suited to the Roman rite. Oh, and also they were concerned with musicians showing off as Musicians are wont to do. It's part of our fallen nature, I suppose. <clears throat> so, I'd like to talk a little bit about a particular golden age of sacred music. And this is a golden age that occurred in the late 19th and early 20th century in France, particular, particularly in Paris. And there are a number of, um, number of reasons for this. Uh, or aspects, important aspects of this golden age. One would be the use of the organ, the pipe organ. Two would be the influence of Gregorian chant and modality uh, as opposed to tonality, which modern music is, is based on. Um, chromaticism, which is the use of all of the keys on the piano, the white and black keys, and a spirituality or mysticism in the music. So let's first talk about the organ and a little bit of background about the organ itself. The pipe organ dates back to about 300 BC. It was developed by the Greeks. I have a picture of a model, a replica of an early Greek organ and two gentlemen who are playing it. Uh, this is called a hydraulis. It used water to create the, the pressure. The Romans used organs during outdoor festivals and events, uh, gladiator fights and the like. There would have been organs at the Colosseum, surely. Um, later on in the uh, Middle Ages, up through the Renaissance, they were often given as gifts from one monarch to another. Uh, Constantine, Emperor Constantine V gave uh, an organ to Pepin, king of the Franks, who was Charlemagne's father. <clears throat> Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth I of England, gave an organ to Sultan Mehmed III in 1599. Uh, Charlemagne had requested that an organ be installed at his chapel in Aachen in 812. And it's around this time that organs start to appear in churches. Uh, originally, I imagine some 
some monarch probably received an organ as a gift and didn't know what to do with it. So he gave it to the local abbey and they put it in the church. Uh, I, can, I can most definitely see that happening. Uh, and so at it, it first, um, uh, the organ in churches would have been used to, to create an effect. They would have been incredibly loud. The first organ in Winchester Cathedral in England dates from the uh, 10th century. And it's said, uh, we have documents that have come down to us that, that say that it took uh, two men to play, 70 men to pump the air, and you could hear it all over town. And so it would have made a, a holy racket. Remember, originally they, they were made for out of doors. And uh, so they would have been used perhaps when the bishop came or, or to uh, get everyone's attention or uh, perhaps to create a sort of vox dei effect, a voice of God thundering uh, from above in a loft. Uh, and by the 15th century, though, they were common in most churches um, and they began to be used for other for other purposes, which we'll, which we'll talk about. The oldest extant organ, by the way, I know you're dying to know, is in Switzerland, in Sion. This is from, I believe, 1310. It's um, still, still playable. You can go there and play it today. Now, the development in organ in France, uh, again, this is one of the, the um, circumstances that led up to this golden age. In the 17th and 18th century, there were a number of prominent French organ builders who were doing fantastic work, building organs that were very bright, powerful, they had very powerful reed stops that operate in the same way that uh, a trumpet does. Uh, I have a recording. This is a famous organ from that period, uh, Saint-Maximin. This instrument is, dates from, I believe, the early 18th century. And here's a recording of that organ. Okay. Now, in the 19th century, there was an organ builder named Aristide Cavaille-Cole who continued this great French tradition of organ building. He, in fact, he rebuilt many of these Baroque instruments, made them even more powerful. Uh, they're characterized by a very warm tone, but an incredible amount of power. Uh, and Cavaille-Cole built a number of instruments in uh, uh, some of the most famous churches in Paris, so Notre Dame, Saint-Sulpice, Saint-Clotilde, Sacre-Cœur, uh, the American Cathedral. Uh, this is an example of his work. This is the organ at Notre Dame. This is uh, what many consider to be his masterpiece in Saint-Sulpice. And we can listen to a little bit of this organ at Saint-Sulpice. Very grand sound. You can imagine in, a, in an eight-second acoustic also what, what that is like. So what, how was the organ used? Well, we know that uh, originally it was used for a special effect or a vox dei, voice of God effect. Uh, during the Middle Ages, a mechanism was developed where you could just draw some of the pipes instead of having them all play at once, and those are called stops. You could stop certain pipes. That's where we get that, that term, stops. Uh, and so the organ became much more versatile. It was actually possible to play it softly. So the organ started to accompany uh, Gregorian chant. In France, though, beginning in the 16th century, a, a peculiar custom developed whereby the organ would replace the choir in the singing of certain parts of the Mass. So, for instance, the Kyrie of the Mass 
in the tridentine mass there are is, is ninefold. It's Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christe, 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 Kyrie, Kyrie, Kyrie. So instead of the choir singing all nine, the organist would play the first Kyrie, which was based on the Gregorian chant. He would improvise a piece based on the Gregorian chant. Then the choir would sing. Then the organist would sing too. So, uh, and this was done for uh, uh, music at the mass. It was done for vespers, and it's a tradition that actually still continues to this day in certain churches. Although technically, I believe it's considered a liturgical abuse now, but it's a very beautiful liturgical abuse, uh, <laughs> and has led to a great amount uh, of, of art. And so the, the, you could see the seriousness with which the French have treated the organ. They have allowed it to take the place of the singing of the choir, and, and uh, in a way, the singing of the assembly. And in a way, the organ sings on behalf of, of all present in the liturgy. Now here's an example of this alternatum practice, as it's called. This is a recent example. I believe this recording might be from this sometime between the 60s and the uh, 1980s. This is Pierre Cochereau, who was organist at Notre Dame. Uh, and as we've already said, improvisation played a key role in organ playing in France. Most of the music, or nearly all the music, played at mass in the, uh, in the 19th century would have been improvised or up through the 19th century. What also developed in the late 19th century in France is the idea of an organ mass. This would be a low mass where the organist would play the entire time. So, of course, a low mass is a completely spoken mass. So the organist would uh, play, usually improvise the entire time, but sometimes play organ literature, works by Bach and the French masters, and usually they would stop at the moment of the elevation, but other than that, it was kind of like being at an organ uh, recital. Um, but a good organist and a sensitive organist of the time would view his role as a sort of commentator on the liturgy. In his improvisations, he would bring out melodies of chants associated with certain parts of the mass, and in the process would uh, weave a, a seamless musical, um, musical uh, uh, fabric throughout the liturgy. Next, uh, next aspect that is important in the development of this French, this 20th century French school is the influence of Gregorian chant. In the mid to late 19th century, a group of Benedictine nun monks at the Benedictine Abbey of Salem uh, were in the process of revising all of the chant books and studying ancient manuscripts. This scholarship uh, had an effect on other musicians in France, uh, not just church musicians, but people like Claude Debussy, secular composers, were influenced by uh, this the revival of Gregorian chant uh, in France. There were various schools founded in Paris to teach people how to sing Gregorian chant and to write polyphony like uh, uh, Palestrina. Um, in 1921, the Archbishop of Paris had uh, implemented a, a plan or put forth a plan to implement the, the changes called for in sacred music by St. Pius X. And so there was a great amount of attention paid to Gregorian chant. It influenced all, nearly all of the aspects of the musical life in, in Paris at the time. Chromaticism 
This early 20th century is also a period where composers or when composers are experimenting with using all of the notes on the keyboard, um, very exotic sounding scales, uh, very dissonant sounding chords at times, and this chromatic language is present in a lot of this French music alongside the modality of the Gregorian chant. Usually this chromaticism is used to create a source or sense of tension or uh, drama or otherworldliness and what makes it most powerful is when it stands alongside music that is tonal. Um, a couple more recordings but I'm afraid just going to play one. This is an example of highly chromatic music of the time uh, meant to evoke a sense of joy. This is from Olivier Messiaen's Ascension Suite, and the title of this is Outburst of Joy of a Soul Before the Glory of Christ, Which is Its Own Glory. Not what you would call pretty, right? but uh, this music is a reflection also of the mystical religiosity of composers like Olivier Messiaen or Charles Tournemire, who were two uh, primary figures of this time period. Um, composers we're going to talk about uh, more in a minute. Uh, a number of these composers felt that through music they could communicate the truths of the faith uh, in a sort of mystical manner through music. Uh, Olivier Messiaen said that the first idea I wanted to express as a musician, the most important <clears throat> is the existence of the truths of the Catholic faith. The illumination of the theological truths of the Catholic faith is the first aspect of my work, the noblest and no doubt the most useful and most valuable, perhaps the only one I won't regret at the hour of my death. Charles Tournemire said, uh, uh, this, but why do the French organists not understand the idea that organ music from which God is absent is a body without a soul? Uh, Tournemire often spoke of the high calling of the church organist who, through improvisations in the playing of organ literature, was able to draw worshipers into a closer uh, um, experience of, of the divine. So all of these things have come together in Paris in the early 20th century. On April 19th, in Christ the King Chapel at 4 o'clock, the Sacred Music Program will be providing the music for Mass in the Extraordinary Form, uh, utilizing music of this time period. Uh, the Scuola Cantorum Franciscana will be singing. Uh, we will have uh, one of our, uh, two of our student organists playing. And what's beautiful about this is uh, this is an opportunity for the campus to experience one of these golden ages of liturgical music right in your own backyard. This, this mass will be uh, not unlike a mass in Notre Dame Cathedral in about the year 1930. And so I want to share some of that music with you in anticipation of that. Uh, the first piece is the Kyrie from uh, Louis Vierne's Solemn Mass in C-sharp minor. Now this Mass was originally written for two choirs, or I'm sorry, one choir and two organs. It's a sort of combination of the orchestral mass tradition, uh, where, but here the, the orchestra is the organ, or two organs. 
Uh, also, the idea of the organ as the voice of God, I think, is especially present here in the Kyrie. You'll hear um, what sounds to me like a very distinct call to conversion in this, this, this Kyrie. So imagine being, being at Notre Dame Cathedral on Easter Sunday and hearing this. It will sound just like that in Christ the King Chapel. <laughs> You know, the, the scola and organist are sounding fabulous. Mm. Be very beautiful, very, very beautiful. Uh, the second set of music that will be heard is a, a set of organ music by Charles Tournemere. Uh, Tournemere wrote a whole series of uh, uh, sets of pieces, organ pieces to be played during High Mass on all the Sundays and major feast days of the year called Lorg Mystique, the mystical organ. And he it timed all of them to fit in very exact places in the liturgy, so right before the introit, during the offertory, during the elevation uh, of, the, of the Blessed Sacrament, during communion, and then one big piece at the end to tie in all of the Gregorian chants of the day. And Tournemir based all of this music on the Gregorian chants of the day, so because the, the purpose was not just to play organ music at Mass, but to weave together the fabric of the liturgy in the organ music. So I want to show you, uh, this is, oh, I'm sorry, this is Vierne, the composer of the Mass, we just heard. There is Tournemir. Now here, this is the communion antiphon for the second Sunday after Easter in the traditional calendar. And this piece that I'm going to play for you is organ music that's based on it. And finally, so that, that organ music, music like that will be uh, spread throughout the liturgy. And finally, we'll be singing a piece of music, a communion motet by Olivier Messiaen, O Sacrum Convivium. Does anyone know that text? Wonderful, wonderful text. O sacred feast in which Christ is consumed. Here is a recording. Now listen to how Messiaen uses harmony and also rhythm to create a sense of suspended time and place. This is very much an early example of uh, the mystical qualities of Messian's music. Let's talk a little bit about what we can learn from this golden age of sacred music and other golden ages of sacred music. How, what can we do to bring about the same sorts of results in the sacred music of today? Well, uh, these golden ages came about uh, during periods of time when the best composers of the world felt inspired, respected, and welcomed by the church. We, that's the church, bishops, priests, and laity, must do everything we can to support the arts, to support artists, and particular, particularly those involved with sacred music. We have to remember that since time immemorial, Christians have felt that only the finest fruits of our labor were worthy of uh, offering in, in divine praise. Too often, the quality of our sacred music uh, is subpar. It pales in comparison to the quality of the music that's being produced by the secular world. We need to rediscover the idea that our first fruits go to God. 
We must dispense with the homeliness that too often is present in our churches, art, and music. Uh, We must rediscover the formative aspect of sacred music in addition to its expressive aspects. So most of us are aware that sacred music is often associated with expressing our praise of God, but it also forms us, and we, we have to rediscover that aspect, both of the liturgy, uh, but particularly sacred music. We have to discard the widely held and false notion that pastoral music, which is often used as a synonym for sacred music, is only that type of music that we like or has an immediate emotional impact or tugs on our heartstrings. Uh, If we think about it, truly pastoral music will sometimes challenge us and as a result deepen our faith. And we should, in the light of the Western Church's tradition, remain open to absorbing the musical currents of our time into our sacred music, but we must, as the Church has throughout history, remain vigilant, being wary of music that is of poor quality, obscures, distorts, or even discards sacred liturgical texts, draws undue attention to the performers, distracts the worshiper from the sacred action of the altar, or draws our mind to the world when we should be entering a higher realm. Now you might ask, do we even need a new golden age? Why do this? Why pay any attention to this? Well, uh, the church herself uh, has told us She gives us the answer here, tells us why. Uh, Vatican II affirmed that the liturgy is the source and summit of our lives as Christians, and also that the church's treasury of sacred music is greater than that of every other art because of its intimate connection with with the liturgy. And so it, it follows that an authentic renewal of sacred music will undoubtedly bear great fruit in the life of the church and ought to be one of our highest priorities in our efforts to build up the kingdom of God. I'd like to thank you for attending, uh, and I'd like to close with uh, Messian. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.